You're listening to audio from christian.org.uk, the website of the Christian Institute. You can find hundreds more audio files at christian.org.uk. Thomas Chalmers. Um, John was saying you possibly don't know very much about Thomas Chalmers. Well, you should know about Thomas Chalmers because really he's the greatest Scotsman of the 19th century. He was a truly remarkable man, a great leader, and one whom God greatly blessed. So, tonight I want us to look at why Thomas Chalmers is regarded as the greatest Scotsman of the 19th century. What I'll do is, We'll begin with the life story of Chalmers and then go on to draw some lessons from his life. Chalmers was born 17th March 1780 in the borough of Anstruther in Fife. That's just north of Edinburgh in Fife on the coast. He was the fourth son of John and Elizabeth Chalmers. Uh, John Chalmers had nine sons and five daughters. His father, his, uh, Thomas Chalmers' grandfather, had been a very prosperous merchant. John wasn't such a successful merchant, but they were still relatively well off. So uh, Thomas was brought up in this home. He went to the local school, and then at the age of 11, he went to St. Andrew's University. So he was just 11 when he went to university. He hadn't received a particularly good grounding in Latin, so for his first two years, he struggled a bit. But he had an uncle who had a great interest in maths, and this uncle had been Uh, teaching him some maths when he was a little boy. So when, at the age of 13, he began to study maths, it was then that he really started to blossom. Uh, So he studied there uh, at St. Andrews, did his general arts degree, and then at the age of 15, he began to study theology, divinity. Uh, St. Andrews was a very small university at the time, just a few hundred students, and the only um, professional qualification that they gave was a qualification for the ministry. So at the age of 15, he began studying theology, and he had completed his training by 1799, when he was 19 years of age. Now, he shouldn't really have been licensed at that age, licensed to be a preacher of the gospel. You were supposed to be 21 before you were licensed, but various strings were pulled, and uh, he was licensed at 19 years of age. But then there was a problem. What would he do? Um, His father tried to get him involved in doing some tutoring for... Uh, various families, but he was rather headstrong and 
He had spent several months tutoring in a family where he felt he was being looked down on as a second-class member of the family, and uh, he didn't really appreciate being treated in that way. He was quite a proud young fellow. And so he made his way to Edinburgh, where he had an uncle, stayed with his uncle, and began attending classes at Edinburgh University, studying uh, chemistry and physics and so on. Eventually, he got a post as an assistant minister in the borders, but then, at the age of 23, he was ordained to the ministry to be minister of the parish of Kilmany in Fife. That's in 183, when he was 23 years of age. He was ordained as the minister there. He was still unconverted. And his great interest was science and philosophy. Kilmany was just nine miles from St. Andrews. So uh, he took up a position as an assistant to the maths lecturer in St. Andrews, and he taught classes there. He was very popular, very original as a lecturer, and some jealousy came in between him and the professor. And so, after a year, his contract was not renewed. Instead of um, spending his time in the parish, he would spend perhaps uh, Saturday and Sunday in the parish, and the rest of the time he was living in St. Andrews, doing this tutoring and studying there. Um, He felt very angry when his contract wasn't (coughs) renewed. And so he started his own independent classes held in the town hall in St. Andrews. And these classes proved popular, but uh, no doubt upset the uh, university even more that this young man was here doing classes doing lectures in St. Andrews, and he wasn't teaching in the university. He taught maths, he taught chemistry. He felt two days a week was sufficient time for a minister to spend in ministerial activities, and that a minister could quite easily spend the other five days following some interest in science or philosophy or whatever. He had a very low view of the ministry. His father um, was a godly man, but Thomas didn't follow in his father's footsteps. In fact, he rejected the evangelicalism, the Calvinism of his father, and he allied himself with a moderate party in the Church of Scotland. In the Church of Scotland, you had, uh, during the uh, 18th century, the moderates were the predominant group. Now, what were the moderates? Well, I suppose they're a bit like liberals today. They did believe in the inspiration of Scripture, but they were um, very dead. A moderate sermon, uh, the sermon of a moderate minister was described as being something like a bright winter's day. It was cold and it was short. (laughs) So uh, moderate sermons weren't of um, much depth. 
really just moralisms and um, kind of a little bit of moral teaching and supposed to be helpful for people culturally. And the moderate minister would spend his time in uh, going to the theatre or hunting and shooting or uh, playing cards with the aristocracy in the neighbourhood. That was the, the life of the moderate minister. And uh, there was much in that that appealed uh, to Thomas Chalmers. The one fear the moderates had was of enthusiasm, as they called it, which basically is evangelical zeal. Any passion, any zeal, any love for the Lord, any excitement about God or about the soul, any personal experience was anathema to the moderates. And so Thomas Chalmers, as an unconverted minister, he was a moderate. But then things were to change. In 1804, there was an opportunity uh, for a man to be appointed as professor of natural philosophy, professor of physics at St. Andrews. He applied, but he didn't get the position. In 1805, there was a job of professor of um, maths at Edinburgh University. Again, he applied, didn't get the job. Then he wrote a book, a book uh, on, again, the sort of economic matters, and published this book at his own expense. Thought a book would be very successful, but again, it didn't really... um, capture the excitement of the the learned people of the day. Then his sister Barbara, an older sister, died of TB in 1808. Then in 1809, a favorite uncle died. And then he himself was struck down with consumption. And for four months, he was confined to his bedroom. And it was a year before he was eventually able to hobble out and to go to um, Kilmany to start preaching again. And it was quite a different man who came from that sick room, obviously humbled by God, (coughs) facing the realities of life, seeing death and eternity so close. He still didn't know the gospel. He was still trying to save himself by good works and struggling to keep the law, to earn his own salvation. And then he came across Wilberforce's book, A Practical View of Christianity. And reading that book, he began to understand something of the gospel He came across also Scott's book, um, The Force of Truth, and that too had an impact on him. And through these two books, he came to understand the gospel and to find assurance of his salvation through Christ. Up to that point, the congregation in Kilmany had been declining In fact, the manse had become a ruin. He wasn't staying there, wasn't looking after it. He was spending his time in St. Andrews following other pursuits. And 
the congregation itself. Um, Very few were coming to the church. The church door collections diminished. But then, having come to assurance of his salvation, understanding the gospel, preaching that gospel with passion, everything changed. Soon the Kilmani church was packed with people. People were coming from all around to hear this preacher. And many were being converted. They were coming to see their own hearts and the sinfulness of their hearts and seeing their need of Jesus Christ as Savior. Chalmers' old friends, his old moderate friends, now had a new nickname for him. They called him Mad Chalmers. They thought it was something that would perhaps wear off, but it didn't wear off. It was the saving grace of God and the power of Jesus Christ by his Spirit working in Chalmers' life. News of this preacher began to get around. Um, He started to preach in other places, and indeed he got a call to London to become a minister there, but he refused that call, and then he received a call from Glasgow to come and be minister at the Tron Church in the centre of Glasgow, And he accepted that call in 1815. Now this church in Glasgow had many wealthy people in it. And the poor people who lived in the Tron area weren't able to go to the church. The church was packed, it was full. Full with those who um, paid seat rents. They had seat rents in those days. and So a person would rent a pew. They'd pay so much per year for this pew. And uh, they are the rights of that pew. And the wealthy people bought the pews in the church. And so the poor people couldn't come to the church. And uh, Chalmers has heart burned for the poor that he was seeing in the slums in the centre of Glasgow. And so he persuaded, after a few years there, he persuaded the city council to make a new parish in the centre of Glasgow, the parish of St. John's. And that parish would encompass 10,000 of the poorest people in Glasgow. Chalmers became the minister there in 1819, after four years, uh, four years in the Tron. He became minister there. He divided the parish into 25 districts so that there were about 400 people in each district. And then... In the districts, he appointed an elder and a deacon. An elder to look after the spiritual needs of these people and a deacon to look after their social needs, their, their, their poverty and the various problems with housing, with jobs and so on, their social welfare. He started schools in the area. He was a great educationalist and had, a, and had great um, belief in the importance of, um, of schools and education. He started schools. He started getting, uh, through his deacons, getting the people into jobs, getting them to work, relieving the poverty. He persuaded the city council to uh, allow his church to manage the uh, relief of the poor in that area and reduced the bill for 
relieving the poor from 1,400 a year to 280 a year. And of course, a pound in those days meant an awful lot more than it than it does today. So the poor relief in the parish was reduced from 1,400 to 280. And at the same time, the lives of the parishioners were raised, the people's housing was improved, their schools, their uh, physical lives were greatly improved, but at the same time, multitudes of them were also converted by the grace of God and the powerful preaching of the gospel. Chalmers had a constant stream of people at his door asking the way of salvation. Every few minutes, the doorbell was ringing, people coming to him, these poor people, and asking about Christ and about the way to be saved. Then in 1823, he was offered the post of Professor of Moral Philosophy at St. Andrews. And surprisingly to people, he accepted it. His reasoning was that it was more important to be involved in the university training men for the ministry. It was the university in those days who trained men for the Church of Scotland ministry. Well, it's the same today. It's the the colleges at the divinity colleges at the university who do it. So he thought it was more important to be training men for the ministry than actually involved in the ministry himself. Also, having got the machinery going in St. John's Parish, he believed that the work would keep going without him. And he wanted to demonstrate to people that it wasn't just his energy that was keeping it going, that the scheme could work on its own. And so he accepted this position as Professor of Moral Philosophy at St. Andrews. And several um, important missionaries passed through his hand, others who became ministers, men like Alexander Duff, who was uh, perhaps the most famous of the missionaries, missionary to India. He trained under Chalmers in St. Andrews. Unfortunately, the churches in St. Andrews at that time were moderate churches. They were very dead. Chalmers himself had married by this stage. He'd married Grace Pratt, the daughter of uh, an army captain. They had six daughters. And uh, his wife, uh, sometimes she she couldn't bear... The, the moderate ministry, and she would go off to the seceders, the, the, the dissenters. They had a, a church nearby, and she would go there for the good of her soul, and um, Chalmers couldn't blame her for that. Uh, he himself started a Sunday school in his house where people would come, and he would um, teach them the gospel and the things of God. But then in 1828, uh, he got further invitations. He got an invitation to become Professor of Moral Philosophy at London University. Turned that down, but then an invitation came to be Professor of Theology at uh, Edinburgh University, and he accepted that, although it was a reduced salary from the salary he was getting in St. Andrews. But he believed in the importance of training men in theology, training men for the ministry. 
And although you possibly haven't got any books by Chalmers, you possibly haven't read anything that Chalmers has written, Chalmers himself, his works um, are 25 volumes in length. Uh, and that doesn't include them all. There would probably be another five volumes of other writings. So he wrote a lot of, a, a lot of uh, books, but um, he wasn't popular really as a writer. Chalmers was predominantly a leader and a preacher. Um, but his students, you'll have read their books, McChain, Horatius Boner, Andrew Boner, George Smeaton, William Cunningham, um, these men, James Buchanan, these men were the students of Chalmers. They were the men whose lives Chalmers molded and they became a mighty force for good. Many of their books have been republished by the Banner of Truth Trust, for example, and are a great, great blessing to us today. So from 1828, Chalmers was there in Edinburgh University at the very centre of training men for the ministry in the Church of Scotland and training missionaries as well. The great, as I, as I said, Chalmers was a moderate to begin with. Moderates predominated in the Church of Scotland during the 18th century and into the 19th century. Um, then Andrew Thompson arrived on the scene. He was a, a great um, churchman, a great debater, who would argue in the church courts, a great journalist and writer. And he was, he was the sort of the leader of the evangelical party. And um, he was their leader right up until his sudden death in um, 1831, and then when Andrew Thompson died, Thomas Chalmers became the natural leader of the Evangelical Party. In 1832, he was elected moderator of the General Assembly. Um, and he began championing the work of church extension. And over the next 10 years or so, he built, was involved in the building of 216 new churches throughout Scotland. Also, in 1833, he was involved in the passing of the Veto Act. Now, and this led to what is known as the Ten Years' Conflict from 1833 until 1843. The Veto Act. The Veto Act, at that time, the rich landlords were the ones who had the power of uh, presenting ministers, as it were, to congregations. They were the ones who said, so-and-so is going to be your minister. The Patronage Act had been passed in 1712, and that gave to the rich landlords uh, the right to place ministers over churches. Now, Chalmers could see how wrong this was, because uh, men who were totally unsuitable were being placed over churches. Sometimes men who were drunkards, unconverted men, and so on. He himself had been unconverted when he was placed as a minister in Kilmany. And so he said that 
congregations should have at least the right to veto the appointment of a minister. And so this was moved and passed at the General Assembly in 1833, a veto on the placement of ministers. People in the congregation could say, no, we don't want this man whom whom you're trying to place as minister over us. Now, this veto act led to confrontation between the church and the civil authorities because the uh, landlords then started appealing to the court of session, to the legal courts, and those who had been presented and the congregations wouldn't accept them, they started appealing and injunctions were being brought out and um, the church started to be, to be fined for not uh, placing these ministers chosen by the aristocrats placed in their, their churches. So um, conflict arose then between the church and the state. And this conflict went on for two years, for 10 years rather, until 1843. Eventually, in 1843, it became obvious that the situation couldn't continue. Either the church had to bow before the state and to accept that the state ruled the church or the church had to break with the state. And so that is what happened. There was the disruption of 1843 when the free church was formed. Free church means independent from the state. The church had been under the state at that point up till 1843 forced by the law courts, they appealed to the law courts, they appealed to Parliament, but Parliament turned a deaf ear. And uh, so in 1843, at the General Assembly, the moderator, the retiring moderator, Dr. Welch, read out a claim declaration and protest against what was happening. And then he got up and he marched out of the General Assembly, followed by charmers, and followed by 200 ministers and elders. At the time, it was reckoned by those in, at Westminster and some belonging to the moderate party, oh, when it comes to the bit, you'll find that only maybe 20 or 30 hotheads will leave the Church of Scotland. But in actual fact, um, 470 ministers walked out of their churches and out of their manses because of a matter of principle, the church must be free to rule its own affairs. It cannot be ruled by the state. So, 470 ministers left their churches and manses, and about half, that was about a third of the ministers in Scotland, and about half the population of Scotland uh, sided with a free church at that stage. Then, of course, there was a problem because the state had been supporting, providing the, the salaries for the, for the ministers in the state church. They were provided with salaries through taxation. How were the ministers going to be supported? And uh, Thomas Chalmers brought in what was called the Sustentation Fund. He believed in the um, power of little, Littles, as it were, adding up. And the idea was that collectors would go round all the people in the parish once a month collecting. And um, these collections gathered together in a central fund and then 
from this central fund, an equal dividend or stipend was paid out uh, to the minister. So every minister in the church was given the same stipend, the same uh, pay. And in this way, it was possible to pay the ministers and indeed to extend the church. New churches were built, new manses were built, new schools. Schools at that time, of course, were run by the churches. So the free church had her own schools, built her own training college. Jordan Hill College of Education in Glasgow was built by the free church. Training college for the ministers, um, new college in Edinburgh, and so on. Um, Foreign missions were supported in a great way. Um, Many missionaries sent out. In some ways, the Free Church in 1843 was perhaps the most evangelical and missionary-minded church that there ever has been. J.W. Alexander, the son of Archibald Alexander of uh, Princeton, he's He came over for um, three months to visit Scotland and he said that he saw it as a church in a constant state of revival. It seemed that right up and down the land, in every part, there seemed to be revivals taking place, God's Spirit mightily at work and the church growing and thriving and flourishing. New college was built to train men for the ministry and Chalmers was appointed, although he was now in his 60s, he was appointed principal and professor of theology. There he was then, uh, teaching students at New College, but he still had his old compassion for the poor and for the needy. And there's a picture of him standing looking out over the... um, over the West Port, a very poor area of Edinburgh, tears rolling down his cheeks with compassion, looking at that area of such poverty, slums, drunkenness, prostitution. That was a place where uh, Burke and Hare carried out their terrible business. You remember the story of Burke and Hare, how they, they used to sell bodies um, for, for, for dissection. And they would go around the graveyards and dig up bodies that had just recently been buried. And if they had an order for a body and they couldn't um, find a body, they would just murder somebody. And their body would be um, sold to the, to the universities or whatever. Burke and Hare, Burke eventually uh, was hanged uh, on the evidence of Hare. And Hare himself died as a beggar in London. But... Uh, that was the area where they worked, the West Port. Chalmers wept as he saw the, the wickedness and the evil and the poverty. And again, his heart moved. There he was, a man in his 60s. What can be done? Something must be done. And so he got a building, an old leather works, and he got a schoolmaster to come along, school teacher, started a school there, and... Uh, got others to help, some of his students. He got them involved in visitation work. Then he got a minister, Reverend Tasker, to come along. They built a little church, and soon they had a congregation of, of uh, several hundred people worshipping God there. And the, the whole tone and character of that terrible slum was transformed. Then, 
we read of Chalmers coming to the end of his life, 1847, a Sunday. He had been down in London preaching, preaching, he said, with greater liberty than he'd ever felt before. Um, returned home very tired, spent Saturday in bed. On Sunday he got up, he went with William Cunningham to church, to Morningside Free Church. Went to bed early that night, he had an important speech to make at the General Assembly the next morning. But the next morning he didn't come down for breakfast. When his uh, housekeeper went up to his room, she found him there sitting in his bed. He had passed away through the night. He was given the funeral of a king. 2,000 people followed his remains on the three-mile walk to Grange Cemetery. 100,000 people lined the streets. The cemetery was packed with people. He was greatly moved. He, He was greatly mourned. People of Scotland realized the great work that this man had done for them. Under the hand of God, used by God, he had seen a Scotland transformed from dead moderatism to evangelical revival and Calvinism and the gospel being preached and souls being saved and the churches revitalized evangelical, evangelistic outreach and missionary work progressing. He had an immense influence for good in church and state. Well, some lessons then um, from the life of Thomas Chalmers. And the first one is that there's hope for unconverted ministers. And that's a very important lesson. You know, we can look at unconverted ministers and we think, well, there's no hope. What's the point of trying to witness to a minister? Just recently I was listening to a converted priest and he said, you know, priests, they have said to me, nobody ever witnesses to us. Have you ever thought of witnessing to your local priest? Nobody speaks to them about their soul. Have you spoken to a nun about her her soul? These people, they're often lonely. They're often, their lives are so empty, so dead. Why not witness to them? Yes, priests can be converted and ministers can be converted. And what a tremendous thing it is when a minister is converted. Just think of the Apostle Paul. That young rabbi, full of zeal, persecuting the church of Christ. Chalmers was like that. He mocked the evangelicals. He ridiculed them. But then, by the grace of God, he was converted. And he became a mighty instrument in the hands of God. So, there's hope for unconverted ministers. Be sure, and as you have opportunity, witness to them. A second lesson is the importance of personal piety. Chalmers is a professor of theology in um, St. Andrews, was uh, Professor Hill. He wrote uh, an extensive systematic theology. He was a Calvinist. 
But Chalmers suspected that he didn't believe what he lectured. And so his teaching had no authority. How different it was when Chalmers took up the teaching of theology. How important it is not just to have the right ideas, but to love the truth, to be zealous for the truth, to be passionate about the truth. We must not just know it, but it must be something that grips us. We need true evangelical fervor. Chalmers, he was a godly man, a praying man. William Cunningham, a great theologian, successor of Chalmers, says he remembers so distinctly the first lecture Chalmers gave in Edinburgh. The sense of the presence of God in that lecture room. Here was a man who knew God. Here was a man who was serious. He was earnest about him. You had a deep, as Cunningham put it, you had a deep sense of the glory of God's presence. Rabbi Duncan, that godly uh, professor of Old Testament in Scotland, he spoke of him as a heavenly-minded man. How important it is to know God. How important it is to have the fear of God. To be passionate about God. Personal piety, it's, it's vital. And then, the third lesson is compassion for the needy. Remember Jesus? How he was moved as he saw the multitudes. Remember him weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that kill us the prophets, that stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathereth her chickens under our wings? But ye would not. How often? But ye would not. His compassion When he saw the leper, the stinking leper, he reached out his hand to touch. When he saw the blind beggar by the wayside, he put his hands on his eyes and he gave him sight. And here we find a follower of Christ, Thomas Chalmers, and his heart is moved as he sees the degradation in the slums of Glasgow, in St. John's Parish, in the west port of Edinburgh. Are we moved when we see the degradation in our own society today, when we see people who've destroyed their lives through drink and through drugs and through prostitution. Compassion for the needy. He had a heart full of love for them. He wrote various books on economics, on relief of the poor. He tried to to help, to direct in various ways the church and the state with regard to compassion and care for the needy. It was a big thing in in his life. We mustn't just be concerned for people's souls. We must have a concern for their bodies too and for their comforts in this life. So he had compassion for the needs of people. Fourthly, he had great concern for their souls. 
along with the relief work, along with the work of the deacons, going round, helping people to get jobs, helping them to feed their families. There were the elders, the elders who taught the word, the elders who made known the gospel. And there was the preaching of the gospel, the full free offer of the gospel. Chalmers, a great Calvinist, he was also at the same time a great believer in preaching the full-orbed gospel. Freely offering Christ to sinners. Whosoever will let him come. Whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. It's a free offer for men and women. Come, take. Jesus Christ is freely offered to us in the gospel. He had a concern for people's souls. There's a story told about a man dying, asking his wife to send for a minister. She said, who will I send for? Send for that minister who came to my door 30 times and I turned him away. Send for Thomas Chalmers. He not only got his elders and his deacons to visit, but he himself was out there going up and down the tenements of Glasgow and of Edinburgh, visiting the poor and the needy, going into the houses full of disease and poverty and stench and filth, bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's saving grace to men and women. A fifth lesson is the vital importance of training men for the ministry, the place Chalmers gave to that, and his success in it. There are some colleges and men go to the college and they go to the college full of zeal and they go to the college good preachers and they come out of the college poorer preachers and they've lost their zeal. That can't be right. A college is meant to be a place where a man who has zeal is strengthened and encouraged and made into a better preacher and a better evangelist and a better feeder of souls. A man with a passion for God. That's what we need. And Thomas Chalmers, he was one who prepared men for the ministry and laid great stress on it. And you just have to look at the huge list of Gospel ministers who came out from his college. Men like Andrew Boner, Horatius Boner, Robert Murray McChain. Oh, these godly men. Milne. People like that who had a great passion for souls. So the vital place of preparing men for the ministry. In his classes, he would read his lectures. He read his sermons too. It amazes us today when you read um, Chalmers' sermons, there's long sentences, and you wonder how it was possible for the man to, to read these sermons and to keep people's interest. But he did. The amazing thing about it is he would read these sermons and his finger never left the page 
And yet there would be passion in it, and such passion that the whole congregation were stirred by it. And as he lectured, he tended to read his notes, but then every so often he would stop, and he would get carried away, and he would start pressing home some point upon his students with great eloquence and zeal and fervor. He introduced textbooks. They didn't have textbooks before in the divinity course. And also, as well as his stated lectures, he had um, courses where uh, times when he would uh, be catechetically teaching the students. So he would have them round, he would ask them questions, and he would discuss and interact with the students in that way. And no doubt the students many learned many things in that way. He inspired these young men with a passion for God's glory and a concern for souls and a zeal to reach out. He encouraged them in missionary concern. He encouraged them in, in going round, visiting, and, and uh, bringing the gospel door to door to people. A sixth lesson from Chalmers is the importance of the headship of Christ. Christ's headship over the church. He was a very conservative man in some ways, very strong on the establishment principle. The establishment principle is something that's believed in the Presbyterian churches in Scotland. Um, It's the idea that the state has a duty to support the church and the church has a duty to advise the state. And there's a kind of interaction between the church and the state. The church advising the state and the state financially supporting and so on, supporting the church. Now, Chalmers was very strong on this, but when it came to the bit, he was prepared, as he said, and did lead the free church out of a vitiated establishment in order to return to a pure one. The government of the day wanted to humble the church and wanted the church, the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, to acknowledge that the government and the civil law courts were above the church. And that Chalmers could not accept. There are two kings and two kingdoms in Scotland. King Jesus and the king in the palace. Two kings and two kingdoms. The kingdom kingdom of Christ and the civil kingdom. And for Chalmers, the headship of Christ over the church was vital. And it must be vital. It's so important. Who is the boss? Who is the supreme boss of the church? It's not the prime minister and it's not the queen. It's Christ and his word. And closely related to that, another lesson is that we must obey God rather than men. The moderate clergy, they said, oh, we must bow to the civil courts. The civil court said, so-and-so must be the minister. You have to accept that. The civil court said, so-and-so must be commissioners at the General Assembly. You have to accept that. The moderate, that's the way the moderates argued. But no, we must obey God rather than men. Whatever the cost, 
even if we lose all our wealth, even if we lose our homes, as these men did, losing their homes and their stipends, we must obey God rather than men. And it's the same today. We have a fight. The Christian Institute has a fight. And it may well come to that point where we have to make a choice. Are we going to obey God or men? You remember how Peter responded to that challenge. Whether it be right in the sight of God or not, you judge. But, said Peter, as far as we're we're concerned, we are going to obey God. And we're not going to be silenced. And we're not going to be silenced on the questions of God's law or Christian morality. No matter how strong the political correct lobby is, you and I must stand for the word of God and fight for that word. Whatever the cost. Sometimes there's a hard choice to be made. Maybe it's prison. Well, so be it. Blessed are they that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Better to be persecuted in this world than to be cast into hell in the next world. Who is boss? We must obey God rather than men. Another lesson is the power of littles. We see it, as I explained in the Sustentation Fund, the pennies that were gathered in the various homes along the streets, these pennies all coming together and providing the support for the ministers. And it was the same in work. You look at the slums of Glasgow and you say to yourself, where do you begin? What do you do? Well, you just start. And you start in one parish and you start with one visitor. And you start doing your little bit. And if every elder and every deacon and every member does their little bit, it all comes together. Sometimes we can be overwhelmed by the great amount of need that there is in our country today. But if you and your small corner do your little bit, and if I do mine, by God's blessing, wonderful things can happen. The power of littles. church is like a body and every member must do their own bit within that body. Otherwise, the body will be lacking. Another interesting point that comes out of uh, Chalmers' life and teaching is with regard to the question of Catholic emancipation. Chalmers would say that the state must not use its power to, to try and make Christians or true Christians of people. In his day, you see, there were laws against the Catholics. Catholics didn't have the vote. And because of that, you had, for example, in Ireland, a whole nation in resentment. Now, many evangelicals said, yes, we must keep the Catholics down. But Chalmers argued, well, What was the situation of the reformers? They were the martyrs. They were being tried and persecuted. And then, by God's grace, they were able to overthrow these governments. But what did they do then? They became the persecutors themselves. 
persecuting the Catholics. The church of God is not extended by carnal means. It's not carnal weapons that's going to extend the church. (coughs) Chalmers said, Give me the circulation of the Bible and I will overthrow the tyranny of Antichrist and establish Christianity on its ruins. It's a sword of the Spirit we're to use. Not penal measures against whatever religion it is. There must be toleration. There must be freedom for people to practice their religion. Otherwise, you are simply creating resentment and martyrs. Freedom, and yet the gospel must be preached. And Chalmers believed that the government had a right and duty to support the true church and to encourage the true church. But the gospel preached and Antichrist will be overthrown. Finally, the final lesson I want to draw is that the tide can turn. When Chalmers grew up, Scotland was in the icy grip of moderatism. Deadness ruled everywhere. The churches, seminaries, the churches, training colleges were run by the moderators, by the moderates. The churches, magazines, the churches, periodicals, moderates, and so on. And yet, that whole system was turned round by God's blessing. First Andrew Thompson, then Chalmers, and then from Chalmers a whole host of people, the Boners, McChane, William Chalmers, Burns, and so forth. The tide can turn. Here we are today. The situation is so dark and dismal and our churches are small and our congregations are elderly and we say to ourselves, things are going from bad to worse. It seems to be getting more and more difficult for the church and we're seeing the growth of immorality and we're seeing the uh, ungodliness of our society and we're seeing blasphemy and atheism, evolutionary teaching and so forth. But friends... In Chalmers' lifetime, Scotland was changed. And Scotland became an evangelical nation. Could it happen in our lifetime? Is our God able to do it? Is his arm shortened so that he cannot save? Is his ear grown heavy? so that he cannot hear? No. The Lord is almighty. He is just the same as he was in the past. He is powerful. Let us pray to him to raise up another Chalmers, a great leader, a great preacher, a great evangelist, a man used mightily by God. Chalmers was greatly gifted. But friends, the amazing thing is that God can use even those who are not as gifted as charmers. Even people with very limited gifts. At the end of the day, glory be to God. The cause is his. 
He will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let us have faith in God. Let us look for greater things. Sometimes when we're involved in a struggle, such as you're involved in in the Christian Institute, we feel it's always a matter of just fighting as we retreat, fighting in this corner, fighting in that, and we've been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back. But the tide won't always keep going out. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Our God is great, and Jesus taught us to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. Let's look to him and have confidence in him and look for great things to happen. We have a great God and we should expect great things from this great God. May we see Britain transformed. May we see the churches growing and thriving. May we see no need for the Christian Institute as our country as a whole recognizes the law of God and respects it. someone like to start the ball rolling? If not, I shall call upon certain people to do that. Gerald here. My understanding is that the situation of the Church of Scotland in uh, Mr. Thomas's day was not dissimilar to that of the, the Church of England now. Um, and that part of Thomas Thomas' solution was to split the church. Um, do you think the same has to happen, should happen, to the Church of England <coughs> if uh, the church in England is to experience the same revival as the church in Scotland did in Th- Thomas Thomas' day? Right. It's a question about the Church of England. Right. Um, yeah, there were... There were certainly there are certainly similarities between the situation in which Chalmers found himself and the situation in the Church of England today or the Church of Scotland for that matter today. Um, Chalmers' first choice was not, of course, split. He was forced into it. Um, he struggled uh, for ten years to try and uh, save. Uh, the Church of Scotland. But when it came to a point of principle, the point where the, um, the church was forced to accept something directly contrary to Scripture, in this case, um, that the government was supreme over the church, then Chalmers said, no, uh, Christ is head and we must follow Christ even if it involves a split in the church. Now, you have the same situation, really, in the Church of England. When there are matters of grave principle and, you know, you get these matters such as homosexual bishops and so on, it's a very difficult one for somebody out with the situation to comment on, and perhaps one shouldn't be too ready to do it, but... um, I would have thought that uh, we must obey God rather than men. And there comes a point where um, uh, those in authority in the church just go too far. There is such a point where people go too far and uh, the faithful 
should put God first, even before the national church. You, you made clear the way in which uh, Chalmers was prepared to, to make the split between the church and the state. And yet he and the Disruption Fathers were insistent on the establishment principle in, in the continuing uh, free church of Scotland. Would you care to comment on that? Because yeah. I think that too has relevance to us today. Yeah. Yeah. He believed that the... Um, the government had a duty to support the church, the true church. He believed also that the free church was the true Reformation church. Um, because the other church, the Church of Scotland, had become subservient to the state and it had lost its place, lost its authority. Therefore, Chalmers claimed for the free church to be the true Reformation Church, and he thought, therefore, that it was the duty of the government to support that church. But, um, and he saw also the duty of the Free Church to continue to advise the government on morality and questions regarding um, scripture and the implications of scripture for society. So, um, and the continuing free churches today, the Free Church of Scotland and Free Church Continuing, would, would both hold to the establishment principle, um, believing that, uh, yes, there should be a relationship between church and state. It's not the relationship where the state um, rules the church, and neither does the church rule the state, but... The, the state should support the church and the church should advise the state. That sort of relationship. Uh, does, that, does that answer what you're... Yes, yeah. I, I think there get... may be some comment needed with regard to the difference between the establishment principle as it's understood in England compared with the way it's understood in Scotland. Yeah, I think the, the Church of England situation would be one where they accept the authority of the state over the church, Erastianism. It's the idea that um, the queen is the head of the church. Now, um, that would be anathema to Presbyterians. Um, the head of the church is Christ, and Christ rules through uh, elders, pastors and elders, he rules through those whom he has called and appointed to office within his church. Rules through his word and through um, the pastors and elders in the church. Uh, you give an example of where uh, Mr. Chalmers persuaded the local council to allow uh, the church to take over the distribution of relief to the poor. I wondered if there were any other examples of ways in which he had had an influence on the practice or policies uh, of uh, local or national government in the social area, if I can yeah. put it that way. Well, certainly he would have had, because he wrote many books. Um, as I said, there's in his collected writings are some 25 volumes. Several of these books are on subjects like um, economics, um, social matters, uh, uh, care for the poor, and so on. Um, 
No, uh, he was highly respected by all society. Uh, it's rather interesting that today there's um, a growing interest from uh, those who have um, who are not evangelical Christians, from um, you know sociologists and people like that, a growing interest in Chalmers because they go back to him and they see. Um, some of them would see him as following in the footsteps of, you know, the French Revolution and so on, and having a political influence in this revolutionary way. Some of them would regard the disruption as the kind kind of failure point. He went so far in his revolution for Scotland, but then he reached the disruption, and that was seen seen by secular historians as a kind of failure point where he left the establishment. You know, he had reached the point where the government weren't prepared to bow, and uh, it would, either the church had to bow or um, the church had to separate. So, yeah, he was immensely influential. Even secular historians. My son's doing a uh, an MLit in, at Glasgow University, and the secular historians there would regard Chalmers as the sort of the great political leader of the nineteenth century. You see, even at that time, they didn't have. They didn't have a Scottish Parliament, for example. They didn't even have a Secretary of State for Scotland. Scottish affairs were very dow- far down the road as far as uh, the government was concerned. You know, it was something tagged on to the Home Office or whatever. But Chalmers was seen as the big political figure. And, uh, yeah, he was able to influence councils, parliamentarians and so on. And many recognized their mistake after the disruption. Um, and uh, so he did, yeah, he did have an influence in secular affairs. Chalmers did in fact win after he died. The, the, uh, was it the 1926 Church of Scotland Act gave the full rights, spiritual rights, right. to the Church of yeah. Scotland. yeah. Yeah, the the on the question of uh, patronage, uh, the Patronage Act was abolished. I can't give you the dates. Uh, it was there were two different uh, times. There was there was one act in the eighteen eighties, and there was another Churches Act. Uh, in fact, I think it might have been even been three. There was a Churches Act of. 196 or something, around 196. And then there was another act about 1925. So bit by bit, yes, they did win. You know, So the Church of Scotland today is in no sense um, under uh, civil power. But sadly, um, liberalism has uh, largely dominated the Church of Scotland since then. And it's, it's rather a sad fact with regard to the free church which in 1843, in the 1840s, 1850s, 1860s, was a great evangelical reformed church. Sadly, uh, in the later 19th century, liberalism came in and really just destroyed it. Um, The first leaders of the free church were godly men, great men of God, and But sadly, when their sons and young men came forward for the ministry, they would send them over to their best men, over to Germany, in order to get PhDs and so on. 
And they came back with these PhDs and with their uh, liberal theology, which they introduced into the colleges in Scotland. And very quickly, um, by, the, by 1900, um, the church, the free church was uh, totally dominated by liberalism, unbelief in the scriptures. And uh, that liberal movement continued really. Um, eventually, the free church in 1929, the vast majority of the free church joined in with the Church of Scotland. And the decline, the liberal decline continued. In fact, it was worse in the free church than it was in the Church of Scotland. It continued really up until um, the Second World War. And only after that did there arise up a growing um, evangelical movement within the Church of Scotland. William Still, the the Philip Brothers and others, um, Cree Fellowship, and, uh, you know, so there are these evangelical men in the Church of Scotland today, although they don't seem to have the, the sort of leadership and vibrancy uh, that one would like to see. Thank you very much indeed, Mr. MacLeod, for your talk tonight and for the open way in which you've been prepared to answer our questions. And we're grateful to you for coming down.